The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you so much. Am I, am I on? All right, I love being on. Uh, it, it's, it's such a delight to be here with you this morning because the traffic was really light <laughs> coming down from Oakland. Um, I, I usually come down on Wednesday mornings for the half-day sitting, and occasionally Gil asked me to lead that, and um, I've just realized that I'm in rush hour, so uh, Sunday was a treat. So my, my bio has not much to do with driving, I um, I started meditating daily quite seriously early in 1993, and I've been doing it ever since, every day. And um, I guess I started carrying the Dharma fairly early on, just teaching my neighbors or having intro to meditation courses in various hard-to-find venues. And um, I have been associated with IMC very soon after it moved into this building. Uh, I've taught every online intro to meditation course. Um, I helped with the Eightfold Path course last year. I was original member of the um, IMC... um, totally forgotten the name of it. Uh, (laughs) People who help Gil with the questions that come in about the Dharma and practice. And that's, it's all been very rewarding over the years. I also lead a group every Monday morning or evening in Oakland and one in Alameda Sangha which has been going for about a little over 10 years. So, and other stuff, which I won't bore you with. But today I want to talk about practice. I've really been focused in the last couple of years on the Eightfold Path and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness and, of course, the ever-popular intro to meditation, what is it that we do? Uh, And these suttas and teachings offer uh, many practices that we can do when we're doing what you've just done. Um, And each one of these practices offers really good guidance for us when we sit or lie down just get stationary to meditate. The basic practice is concentration. That's sort of the cornerstone that supports almost anything we can imagine doing in our practice. And that's uh, this continuing effort to, and I don't mean to say striving, but just the intention to bring the attention to one object. And usually it's the breath, but by that 
I please understand I mean to include countless other things like a mantra, the the metaphrases, an image. There are many, but I'll refer to whatever the object of concentration is as the breath. Um, Concentration is so important because it holds us in the present moment. It's an anchor. And, you know, usually that's not where we are here and now. And when we are, then something really precious can happen. And that's that we can see that we're aware. We know we're there. And that ability to observe lets us do what all of the practices are intended to do. Excuse me. The, the practice that we're most used to going into after we've established some concentration is mindfulness. And that's actually a very complicated endeavor to be mindful oh, for 40 minutes. That's, that's amazing. Uh, and during that time, things happen. Uh, we get distracted from our object of concentration. And that's perfectly okay. That's to be expected. Because in 40 minutes, we're probably not doing real concentration practice. Uh, I've had many students over the years say, when does this get better? <laughs> and uh, you know, I'll say, well, after about two weeks. Um, that's what it took for me for the concentration to become continuous for any length of time. At, of course, a residential retreat. So don't worry (laughs) if it's not easy because, um, you know, it it doesn't get that way. Um, But we get used to it. It gets to be what we do when we sit down and and we no longer worry that it isn't easy. When we have enough to remain mindful for a period of time, we get to observe what happens, what comes up, what's troubling us, and how that feels. Because Usually that's suffering, that's dukkha. And that's what we're engaged in, is to understand dukkha and how it ends. And it does end. It always ends. Some things, like the loss of a loved one, are always there. But the dukkha subsides. And that's that's the That's how it ends. That's how our suffering passes eventually. And when we're able to observe that, then 
we understand that dukkha arises and it passes away. And there are causes for both of those things. And we get to study them. And I don't mean like book study, although that helps. But we get to investigate, observe, and get familiar with that. There's also a practice of open awareness. And I just checked in on Gil's um, practice instructions this past Wednesday, and that's what he was talking about. It's when you're not guiding your attention. You're, You're not trying to stay on the breath, really. You're just opening the awareness and watching There's also metapractice, which is this wonderful um, choosing. I think that's a big part of it, choosing phrases, because there are a lot that are out there, and then repeating them to incline the mind toward kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. And contemplation. The group that owned this building before IMC moved in were uh, contemplatives. And so they greatly welcomed the fact that this was going to be a meditation center. I would define contemplation as mindfully mulling over something. You know, the expression, why don't you sit with that? Whatever that is, it's something that you gently keep bringing the mind back to and feeling it, feeling uh, what it brings up for you. And then, of course, there's daily life practice. And here is uh, the great beauty of practicing that coming back to awareness of the present moment Because to be able to do that in the rush of daily life is invaluable. To be able to notice the beginnings of anger and deal with them and not let it feed itself, it's very beneficial. And it's beneficial to work with all of these practices and to learn them and be somewhat comfortable with them so that when that's the right thing for us to do, we know how. And then there is the fact that when we're meditating, it pretty much is what it is, whatever our plans may be. We may fall into a routine of how we meditate most of the time, And that's fine. Every now and then, it's a good idea to review that routine and try to discern if it's still helpful and whether or not it needs to be changed up a little bit. And it helps to know our aspirations, both for this sitting and overall Why are we meditating? Maybe 
for both right now and overall, it's still the original aspiration that brought us to practice. And it's always good to revisit that. Usually it's suffering. Meditators are, of course, not the only people who suffer. We just recognize (laughs) that we're doing that and we want to be free of it. And we've come to trust that this is the path to liberation. Revisiting that original aspiration lets us compare life then to life now and see the improvement that's happened. It fuels and empowers our continued practice. Many years ago now, for five years, I taught meditation to addicts and alcoholics who were under a court order to attend a program that I was involved with. And you can just imagine how enthusiastic they were (laughs) about sitting still and doing nothing for 40 minutes. Um, Actually, it, it got shortened because I realized I had to motivate these people. And I know enough about the lives of addicts and alcoholics to know what would do that. And I promised them that if they learned what I was teaching and practiced it for a month, they would see an improvement in their stress level, in their judgment, and in their relationships. Because these were a stressed out bunch of folks. And they had exercised some really lousy judgment, and their relationships had badly suffered. So these were motivating to them. And I have to say that uh, I was really astonished at how many of them came back to me and to thank me for this gift of their meditation practice and to, to tell me they were still doing it and their life had gotten better. So seeing that improvement is so uh, empowering for us. When we sit down, there may be specific issues that or dissatisfactions that sit down with us. And if we have worked with a variety of practices, then we have a toolbox right next to us to find the tool that's going to meet our current needs. It's, it's like uh, you reach in and you get a socket wrench and... and you try it out, and maybe the nut's too big or bolt or whatever it is. Not much of a handy person. And, and so you reach in and you try another socket wrench. And you find the one that, that works, that's going to meet your current needs. 
Now, that's different than when you're learning a practice. You want to dedicate a certain amount of your regular sitting to that practice until you kind of see how it works. But for your regular sitting, if you you come and you find something needs attention, maybe what you need is metta, compassion for yourself. Start with that and then see you know, what works for right now, right here. Much of practice is trial and error. There is a famous Zen teacher, in fact, he's so famous, I haven't been able to remember his name, but, but he was asked if he could sum up his career in teaching. And with a smile... He said, one mistake after another. <laughs> and he's right. That's I would do the same. We need to respect what's difficult, our impediments. They're also called hindrances. Because they're good teachers. They're not just something to get over. They're something to get through and explore. It's very common to blame ourselves for the fact that we're restless or sleepy or craving something or afraid, sad, whatever. But that's identifying with mind states. And they're impermanent and insubstantial. They're just mental events that arise and pass away. They're not me or mine. That's that's a hard thing to, to grapple with, but when we see that impermanence, it it helps. So there's no need to deny that this is what's here or to, to push it away. In fact the things that mess with our meditation and our lives are such wonderful learning opportunities. In some form, they're either desire, aversion, restlessness, dullness, or doubt. And as Rumi says, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. It's, it's good to know the antidotes to the hindrances, and I'm not going to teach them now, but you just Google them and there they are. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure they're on the list of lists that's, you know, right on the IMC website. It's changed, I'm not sure where, but you'll find them. <clears throat> but, it, you know, it's even better to study 
the hindrances that arise. And as you see how they pass away, what conditions under which or the causes that makes them pass away, we learn better how to manage them. Maybe they can even be prevented. Um, well, no, I'm not going to cho- talk about my craving for chocolate just yet, but <clears throat> it may be coming up. Um, that that process of observing and seeing them pass and learning how to prevent them, that's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. That's what I'm going to be talking about tonight in Alameda. Um, But with the hindrances, if we have observed them, seen how they feel, what they do with the mind, how they interact with our other mental uh, activity, and they're still there, they're still plaguing us, that's a good time to bring in the antidotes. Or when we're trying to concentrate and they just won't let us do it, won't let us return to the breath. The attitude with which we practice can uh, promote our overall well-being and our progress on the path. And there are several elements to this attitude that I'm talking about. I think first and foremost is acceptance. Uh, All the practices in the Satipatthana Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness include a refrain to do these practices without clinging to anything in the world. And usually the first talk on the Four Foundations or the Satipatthana Sutta that covers these refrains, people react like, I have to be completely enlightened before I can do this, you know, not clinging to anything. But what it means is in that moment when the clinging arises or when the hindrance arises to not cling to it not to identify with it not to make it me or mine and okay now is the time for chocolate I you know the common hindrance is um, desire you know, I, I like when I was working on this Dharma talk, I got I was working away and really thinking and typing and and um I got to the point where it, it was hard. I didn't know what to do. And this urge kept coming up to go get a treat. I would like a treat, the voice said. And uh, you know, fortunately, I didn't identify with it. I recognized, well, that's just, you know, desire arising. And eventually, it, it passed away. And 
voila, of course, once it left, I could see where to go next with this talk. And if I can find my place in my notes, I'll do just that. (laughs) So, yes, in the moment that we know that this desire or aversion has arisen, it's so important to remember it's okay. It's just that hindrance. And we can just observe it. It's safe. It's safe, really. Even when something really powerful, like a a recent rage that we've had, or a humiliation, or grief, when it arises, we can hold it. Uh, We're we're safe. We can allow our awareness to be unguarded. And, and not keep it out. And letting it in. And I don't, I don't mean to say that you, every time you sit down, you have to allow these really powerful feelings to come in. I mean, really, start with the little ones. Don't go intentionally to something really, really powerful. Develop this ability to have an unguarded awareness and to feel safe. And it might help to remember, uh, here's an analogy for it, that we're like the audience at a play, that we're just watching the action and we have no stake in the outcome. Really, whatever it is, it's, it's there. It, we're not a member of the cast. And I think we begin this open, accepting attitude when we begin to watch the breath. And the instruction I give every time is to just watch it, just observe Feel how the body does it. The movement of the ribs, the diaphragm, the air entering the body, coming back out. The body does it. We don't have to do it. We don't need to control this. We can be passive and the body will keep us alive while we're not doing it. And we are going to survive whatever arises in our minds. We're safe. A thing that can also help with this feeling of safety and okayness, acceptance, is meta. Because we're going to see some things we don't like and we're going to think that that's us. And if we practice loving ourselves, then we have this mm, kind of a grandmother hug in which we can hold the things that we're ashamed of or afraid of or whatever. 
And again, we don't have to start out with the really big things. We can build up to that. I think I mentioned having metta for ourselves, but it's also really important to have compassion for our suffering. That's what brought us here. That's probably what keeps us here. It's through all of the stages of enlightenment we're going to be studying dukkha. Another part of the attitude that we can bring to our practice is ease. It's not necessary or helpful to strive at this. That I, I think of those people who so wanted to just have their attention stay on the breath, putting so much energy into it, getting so frustrated. You know, this isn't a contest. There's no prize. Nobody really ever says good. <laughs> You're doing a great job meditating. I mean, I've never even said that too much. Well, no, I have a couple of times and immediately my mind goes elsewhere. <laughs> and that's our goal really, isn't it? To live with ease. In fact, I think that that's the title of this talk is living with ease. I mean, imagine that. Just imagine living with ease. Everything going easily. No frustration. No irritations. No disappointments. No anger. No dissatisfaction. Things happen and we respond with ease. Moving through each day, through life, with ease. And that doesn't mean that we're moving in slow motion. You know, I've, I've watched movies about highly trained spies who are doing these somersaults and amazing physical things, you know, and it's an instant response to whatever is going on. And I, I try to imagine what that mind state is. And it has to be one of some confidence, I mean a lot of confidence, and ease. Life-threatening situation, just responding instantly. So we can't reach a goal of ease through striving (laughs) by being all tight with expectations about what should happen, 
what we should do as we meditate. We're just observers. We don't need to push this river. We're just watching it go by. And only when we accept what comes along can we observe it. I go on camping retreat, retreats in, in the mountains uh, in the middle of the week during the summer. And I love to do my walking meditation in this one site along the side of a river. And, you know, sometimes I'll pause and just watch the river. And there'll be a fish that darts around or, or whatever. Just, just watching there, what comes along. And also another part of the attitude is less. Less of what we're doing. It's a process of letting go of one thing after another. Uh, the, these hindrances come up and we let go of our attachment to them. We let go of whatever comes up that distracts us. One thing after another. As Gill says, it's enlightening. We get lighter as we let, really it feels that way, as we let go of all of these things in the, in the jhanas, when the five hindrances are gone, it really feels so light, like levitation, almost. It's, I think that image of the meditators, a foot off the floor or more, it can feel that way. This notion of less, of letting go, lightens our burdens, not just during the meditation, but as we get up and go into our day. We become freer as we let go of striving to overcome or stifle the things that distract us, that impede our practice and our lives. In the fourth foundation of mindfulness, we go through the series of practices first starting with the hindrances of seeing this lack of uh, substantial and permanent self that's the, the core Velcro that everything sticks to, to have less of this identification with our states of mind, whatever actually that we think of as me. And to study, to study the, 
the hindrance or the uh, state of mind that arises that we think of as, oh, well, that's, that's me. To see how it feels. Watch as it fades and passes away and to understand how it can be prevented. And all of this without clinging to anything in the world, including the story that comes with all of these troublesome states of mind. Letting go of that, which it's heavy, that story. The Buddha compared it to um, to standing next to a bonfire that threatens to get out of control and just throwing logs onto it. As long as we're in the story, we're fueling it. But when we let go of it, then it burns itself out. So we just watch it from inside the mind and inside the body. That's why the breath is the common uh, object of concentration because it's in the body. The body is always doing that. And if mind states come up and they feel bad, And we all, all of our emotions, we think of, you know, the story, but it's the way that affects the body. And when we're we're meeting it and holding it with compassion and acceptance and love, that's freedom. That's liberation. So, may you live with ease. Thank you.